Hello, welcome to the Life Done Differently podcast with me, Neil Whitten, and my co-host, Ray Richards. Join us on our journey to find out what separates the doers from the thinkers. You can't hear that angle grinder going on in the background. In this episode, we spoke with an old school friend of mine who set out to live a Miami Vice lifestyle and through his own hard work, achieved it. These days, he introduces me and other school friends to people like Anthony Joshua and Shane Warne, who count him amongst their friends. Private jets and glamorous locations around the world are the norm. Professionally, he's known as Hong Kong Tom. He's an Asian online gambling pioneer known best for brands like Daffabet, sponsors of Fulham and Celtic. When we were teenagers, Tom frustrated the hell out of teachers because he was bright but not particularly motivated by school. He left school in the UK with one A-level, a spell in London followed and then Hong Kong. Um, Hong Kong provided him with the opportunity to experiment with entrepreneurship. A lifestyle of risk followed. Tom's ability to withstand the losses that come with taking risk is why his story stands out. Three weeks after getting married and and well before any significant wealth, he was sued and had to borrow $3.5 million from a friend to avoid going bankrupt. So motivated was he to repay the debt, he risked his marriage by working 24-7 for two years, uh, but it showed him what he could do when he put his mind to it. He repaid the debt. What I like most about Tom is his ability to focus but never lose sight of the bigger picture, including a super skill in bringing his wide circle of friends and colleagues together. Enjoy. Tom, thank you for, t- for spending the time doing this. Pleasure. It's much appreciated. I know that you're, um, you're about to fly off somewhere tomorrow, aren't you? Off to Dubai for a few days and then back to Hong Kong. So, yeah, thanks for, thanks for carving out a couple of couple of hours with us um so tom hall um i'm gonna i'm gonna let let you introduce yourself um friend of ray's <laughs> yeah yeah so you grew up together yep uh at what kind of age uh well i moved to farnham when i was 11 um tom was already there um so are you born and bred then tom i was born in farnborough but my parents moved to farnham when i was about two and i met ray when we started delivering newspapers from the same news agents actually Fantastic. paper rounds in those days so you actually had to get on your bike and fill a bag and uh go and deliver them along with the milkman that you used to see every morning another part of the uk that doesn't exist anymore yeah i remember oh they do what milkman yeah we have a milkman really yeah oh that's good no but there's a resurgence is there? Yeah, it's this whole kind of eco lifestyle thing. Yeah, yeah. right, okay. The, um, like milkmen are really I like on, it. on the I way like back up. And, and they were there originally, weren't they? The electric cars, the original electric cars. Oh, yeah, of course. There you yeah, go. Yeah. yeah. God, I didn't think about <laughs> it. Take them seriously. And recycling. <laughs> yeah, <in> <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Glass yeah, bottle the recycling. Yeah, that's the right, yeah. staring us yeah, in the yeah. face. Um, so, Tom, if I met you um, and didn't know Ray and, and, and said, what do you do? How, how would you answer that question? How would you, how do you describe yourself? I predominantly online gambling and software development with a bit of real estate on the side I guess I've never had that or I haven't had a sort of really defined focus for probably 20 years plus uh, when I used to be in finance um, so these days predominantly software predominantly online gaming and a few interesting things along the side but um, very successful in business and you've taken more than one company public yes uh, I've taken two companies public directly where I was involved as a principal and uh, one sort of a secondary guy and taking one company private which I 
I guess we can get on to a bit later on, which is a, another interesting experience. Yeah, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, you want all the, one of your goals is to take a company public, and it can certainly be worth it on the, on the money side of things. But there are a lot of positives and negatives with that sort of uh, transaction, and you, you learn a lot going through it. You said the word entrepreneur there. Would do, is that something you describe yourself as? Yes, I think so. Uh, I'm as, as as I have a business mentor, and he describes me as unemployable. Uh, and I think that would probably be true these days. I think a common trait of entrepreneurs is they really like to do their own thing and makes you it makes it very difficult for other people to tell you what to do um, because you always think you're right and sometimes you're very definitely not right. But I think as a common trait of an entrepreneur is you want to lead the way in doing your own thing and make your mistakes as you go along. Yeah. But, and I've certainly made enough of those. Has that been, so that, that characteristic, has that been with you for as long as you can remember? No. <laughs> Yeah, my parents would definitely tell you yes. I've always, I've always wanted to make money. I think that was certainly clear from a young age. How that came about was, you know, it changed over the years. But it, the, I think the wanting to make money was was an underlying drive of mine my whole life. And why, why, why did you want to make money? I don't know. I, I, I it wasn't really for phys- uh, for possession of nice cars or nice things. I don't know. I just. I think I wanted to be rich rather than poor. Uh, Maybe more from just influence of, of TV. I wanted to, to have the things I liked. But I think the most important thing was having a nice house. A nice place to live in was always a, a fundamental uh, thing for me. And I, I think growing up in the UK in the sort of 70s and 80s, you saw California and beaches as the sort of epitome of like successful living, nice, nice weather. So I think that somehow stuck with me. You know, Miami Vice type TV shows and... <laughs> Um, and I think I wanted not so much I think oh, I'd like to live in a place with nice weather and near the beach and, and live in a nice house I th- that was it more than anything else though I might I started trying to buy and sell things from a very young age to make money what was one some of your earliest memories of that of, of, of trying to make money at a young age uh, the two that one I sort of forgotten about but one my mother always reminds me of is that uh, I went we used to go skiing in Austria every year and there was a, a rock and gem shop there and they had stuff for sale in the window. And I was into geology, a bit of a nerd in those days. <laughs> and there was a place near where we live, a chalk quarry, where you could dig out these things called marcasites, which looked like sort of, um, I don't know, they look like dinosaur poo, for want of a better word. But if you split them open, they're full of like uh, iron pyrite and looks like sort of fake gold. And I saw these shops were selling it for quite a lot of money in Austria. So next time before we went skiing, I got my mum to take me to the chalk quarry. We managed to find a few of these things. I took them with me to Austria. I sold, walked into the shop and said, would you like to buy these? And I think <laughs> more out of sympathy. And I think I was about 10 years old at the time. Uh, he bought them off me and I took my parents to dinner. So that's probably my first entrepreneurial thing. And then a couple of years later, my mum and somebody else was going on the Trans-Siberian Express uh, across Russia to Irkutsk and then down to China. And I'd read somewhere that uh, Russian people wanted uh, jeans, Western Levi jeans. So... I managed to buy a few pairs of jeans with all my savings and um, gave them to my mum's friend and they uh, sold it for double the amount of money I'd bought them for, So, which was quite a lot of money for me in those yeah, days. Kind of, what kind of age <laughs> is that? Uh, she did that in the 70s, so it's, I would have been under 12. I can't remember yeah, exactly yeah. when it was. 12, yeah, it's probably ten, somewhere between 10 and 12 when that happened. Has that desire to, to make money, and maybe we can get into this a bit later, has, has that changed now? Do, do, do you still feel like you've got that, that same sensation in you not quite the same i think if you get fortunate enough to get lucky in life and have businesses that do well and you get a lot of the trappings that come with it 
other things uh, if you don't ha it's great not having financial pressure uh, but other things become more important particularly for, in my case family mm. yeah okay maybe we can come back to that so so you started off let's talk about um you were you were doing your your paper round and uh and, and growing up and we talked just before we we started recording that the the typical path was probably go to university make your way in the world get a career and and all the rest of it and and you didn't go to uni so what what was what was some of the earliest memories um that you have of, of feeling as though that you you were kind of going against the grain or starting to carve out your own future uh, both my parents are academics my dad was a research scientist based at what was then RAE Farnborough he was a, r a real rocket scientist my mother was a language specialist worked for the German government uh they were very academic every breakfast lunch and dinner at home was quizzes and questions from my mum and dad yes it was geography questions maths questions physics questions language things and they just constantly challenged us as as kids don't know what that called sorry boys um the my sister and i used to read books and we used to read book round we both used to read the same book at the same time so lying down i'd be reading it normally and she'd be reading it upside down every chapter we'd switch it around so from an early day you know i learned to read books upside down which <laughs> was very useful in business later on we can talk about that later but uh they, they my parents were pretty disappointed with my o level and a level results uh, ray and i went to the same schools uh our schools were pretty were okay but I was much more interested in sport than than uh, I was uh, working at that academic type stuff at that time. We went to Farnham Sixth Form College, which ended up having a phenomenal record for a small town for great rugby, great football, because uh, you know, Ray actually played in the team that won the UK Soccer Championships. And was I just he a good footballer then? No, Ray's he just was, disappeared. Ray was an average footballer, average footballer. But we had some very good footballers. Hold on, he's, ca he's coming back. We're going to have to get him to comment on this. So you, but, um, you played for a football team that was the one, the UK, England uh, FA Cup. No, no. Yeah. really? Yeah, the uh, under 19s FA Cup. Wow. Well, I was sub actually, but. <laughs> I was in the photo, and I'd um, I'd always enjoyed maths, and I, the trigger for me, I had a terrible maths teacher on a last thing on a Friday at college, and I think it went downhill from there. So I just bunked off every <laughs> Friday afternoon, and you start getting behind, you just got less and less interested. My best subjects, I got I got okay O level results, but my A levels were terrible. I think I could pass one, fail two, and um, so I was. But I still bizarrely got accepted by a couple of universities for interviews. It must have had a desperate year for students that year or something <laughs> but so, you st so you still applied so you still you, you, you had to you know you had to go do your ucker stuff i yeah, still remember yeah. you went through your first choice my i know i still remember my first choice was durham because i think they had a sports i can't remember it was durham or somewhere like uh, that good for rugby good yes uh the, but anyway i didn't get there but lse in london i got accepted at least for an interview to go to the interview so i went up to london uh so i guess what we would have been 18 at the time around then 84 yeah, yeah 84 yeah something like that um and went to the interview along with the whole load of, it was more, more such a, it wasn't so much an interview but just an orientation as to what's going on and yeah it was but it was economics and great school but on my way back to walking back to the tube then to waterloo station walked past a job center and there was a, a trainee accountant role at an insurance company which was paying i still remember fourteen thousand five hundred pounds a year not bad which seemed like a fortune at the time where, where where did that rank would you say at the time in terms of average average salary Oh, I've got no idea. That, I, mean, I would been say good. that's probably on the upside of average yeah, yeah. salary, isn't it? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, this was this. So this has got to be eighty five, eighty six, I think, <clears> in <throat> yeah. London. I think the U, this was just before the sort of recession hit the UK, 
Um, it wasn't a good time around then, but there was good jobs available. Um, so I went for the job, got uh, got you know went on to probation, and the, literally the first week I was there at this insurance company, I got invited to their sales side conference. So this was commission only sales life insurance and of course I've never had a job other than my newspaper round which was based you earned exactly on how many hours you worked and you got Christmas tips and if you went in early you got to mark up the papers you got a bit of extra money for that if you were me you got your mum to make um, mince pies at Christmas and then you could triple all your tips <laughs> oh, <laughs> good idea I thought that. entrepreneur yeah uh, the so the um, lost my train of thought there so you were at a sales conference yeah sales and conference and it's they were going on about you know the the prizes for the top salesman of the month and and it looked so much more fun than the trainee accounting side and i didn't really understand salary versus commission only uh without a doubt the hardest job i've ever had i became a commission only life assurance salesman through an insurance company based in london our ox- office was just off oxford street on a road called dean street and you went through a two-week course, um, by which time you were sort of sem- pretty much brainwashed and indoctrinated. And um, I, our first job to you obviously was you were told go and find your friends that want a savings policy that started work. But when you're 18, hardly any of your friends have got a proper job. Did so you buy you, one, Ray? Yeah, Ray got one. Did you? <laughs> well, I didn't. No, I didn't. But I did get the paperwork through the in the post saying I'd signed up to a pension or something. I was I was a student. <laughs> few of my friends helped me Tom, out, Tom, what, what have I just received through the post? Don't worry about it, don't worry about it. <laughs> there was a bit of that. Um, yeah, we there was a, there was no sort of financial, what they call it, Financial Services Act in the UK, but this yeah. is all pre-Financial Services Act. So we used to stop people on Oxford Street, I'd stand them, it was called street leading, and go, I can still, this, because I said it so many times, it's still ingrained in me, excuse me, do you have a moment? I work for a company called Liberty Life, there were some terrific ideas about saving money, obviously I can't talk to you here and there, <laughs> I'd like to get your name and number, I'll get back to you later. And usually you get told to F off, but occasionally you got somebody's <laughs> telephone number and then you'd ring them back and you try to make an appointment and you would sell some policies. But that you learn, if anything else I learned from that job was objection handling because mm. they taught you when people said no, how you go back to them and what if and that. And it, it, it teaches you that and it teaches you how to become thick skinned. And it was also my first experience at massive age of 19 of, you know, you were taught to build your teams of people underneath you. And you know, what do I know at 19 about managing anybody? It gave you, uh, I was being managed by somebody who had a, you know, a re- branch manager, regional manager. So you learned a bit about the management hierarchy, but I, I learned very quickly. It was often who you knew, not what you knew, because I was a really good skier and the big boss of the company wanted to go skiing and somebody to look after his kids. So I just put my hand up and said, hey, I can ski, I'll take your kids skiing. So I got to spend time with a whole senior management team that on this star free, uh, skiing freebie, I was there to look after the kid. But you know, I listened and you know, something my father taught me at a very young age was God gave you two ears and one mouth, mm. therefore listen twice as much as you talk. And in those days, I did listen a lot. I, I talk a lot more these days, <laughs> <laughs> senility. Uh, but you, have I you listen- found yourself passing that onto your kids yet? Not so much to my kids, because I think you treat kids very differently to business things, but I certainly pass on that message to you know, junior trainees. Uh, we have sort of some university programs in the Philippines and places like that, so if I'm occasionally asked to come in and talk to people, that's a message I always try and pass along. Is you know, you've got, Don't be afraid of asking questions. Ask as many questions, sensible questions as you can, but always listen. Mm. You know, don't pontificate when you're... It reminds me of people that go straight from university and do an MBA. I mean, like, what the hell are you doing mm. doing an MBA when you haven't even worked properly in your life? Um, so. can, I, can I just take you back to getting out on the street? Yes. Because, 
that's quite a nerve-wracking thing to do having having done that myself i, I mean i just I, I i hated it i hated it too but it was my job and at 7 to 18 19 you don't know any different and when you're on commission only you know that if you don't close cases you you don't get paid so you have to go out and but, uh, do it but just coming back a bit before that as well so and i think it's probably placed to where ray's coming from with this so it sounded like you you still had a choice to get to get to university right so it might not have been a great university and it might have been doing economics but but you had that you had that choice but 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 there was a drive in you to go and want to start earning and, and and at that time did you feel as though you were you were foregoing any of the other things that you might have got from university and not other than my friends that were at university and from my group of close friends from school i'd say probably only 25% went to university the rest didn't so the rest had a mixture of jobs or no job at all and the ones at university all we ever heard about was the fun they were having partying and we used to go and visit them so yeah. I didn't really feel I was missing out that much okay. so not from a career I wasn't really thinking about career development at that point in time um, and if the guys that stayed in our hometown were actually making the most money they'd taken jobs in construction whatever in those days you were working construction you had a lot of money in your hand every week driving around in your uh, XR2 well, I certainly wasn't driving, no, but no, other yeah. people were. Yeah, <laughs> we'll right. come to that later. But the, uh, no, so I didn't think I was missing out at all. And it wasn't like 10, 20, or certainly today when, you know, kids are expected to go to university. You cannot get a good job if you haven't been to university. And I know everybody points out the sort of few, you know, the Steve Jobs of this world and the Bill Gates that didn't finish university. But I think you have to have um, a basic level of intelligence to get on in, you know, there are, people that are really stupid that have got lucky in life and I'm not going to name any of those ones <laughs> um, but predominantly if you've got entrepreneurs or people who build their own businesses they've either got a level of intelligence or a level of incredibly hard work that has got them to where perseverance mm. I think more than anything else and you've got to have a thick skin I think mm. if you build your I think that's something you'll see a lot of, you've really got to be prepared to make mistakes and get called stupid names by other people for a long time and, you and your time spent on Oxford Street with Liberty Life was probably a part of that a big oh, part of that for sure I think the first lesson I learned about not wanting to fail or not wanting to be last was at Liberty Life, if you were the worst salesman of the month, and this was humiliating, I remember this, was I was the worst salesman, I think the second month in, I'd sold the least amount of policies. So my punishment from our branch manager was I had to go down onto Oxford Street and there's these little concrete islands in the middle of Oxford Street and sit in a chair with a plastic fishing rod and a plastic bucket and fish for 30 minutes as my punishment. Because you, and that taught me I did not want to be the worst performer. You didn't again. want to do that again. No, no I didn't no, want to no. do that again. Was there was there not a way? Because I I could see um, a, a generation of people today who would almost feast on that as an opportunity. You know, the idea of having a license to go and sit in the middle of o Oxford Street and and fish, and the attention that they'd get, and the opportunity to say, yeah, look, this is why I'm here. And you know, was there any of that for you, or was it was it the culture was so much? Culture more was so different. You, you were, first of all, there was no mobile phones. Forget social media. There was mm. no mobile phones. So unless you were walking down Oxford Street with a camera, which tourists were, your average person going to work, bear in mind cameras in those days were the size of bricks. Forget phones. Um, you, you were more worried about being seen. You wanted to get away with this as quickly as possible. The, the whole concept of I want to be seen, I want likes, I want public exposure. It was humiliation, wasn't yeah, it? it was, yeah, you were humiliated. You didn't want to be seen doing that. Yeah. Uh, 
as today people get off on you know people doing stupid things and being filmed about it and it gets crazy amount of yeah. you know, social media presence but no in those days it was god i never want this to happen again i never want anybody to see me i didn't tell people about this for years so it was psychologically scarred <laughs> well it, these days it would probably be called bullying by the office yeah yeah oh, for sure for sure i mean the a- stuff that hr went would go nuts wouldn't they bullying i mean the whole me too thing personally i think that's gone a bit too far in a lot of cases but i mean there are so many there were so many things wrong in the standard office environment of those days yeah. whether it was racism or sexism or bullying as you would call it though i don't i don't know if it permanently scarred anybody that worked there we all seem to have fun we actually had a reunion about 10 years ago of the people that worked there which is now 30 years ago and everybody different people have had different levels of success but funny if we all look back on what was probably our shittiest job ever yeah and all laugh yeah and we all we all think about that you know i had to eat sugar like we actually were so poor i was working with jez and we were sharing an apartment we had no money like three days before the end of the month we went into mcdonald's and stole sugar packets because wow. it's the only food wow. so we lived on sugar true story sugar packets and we had, i think we had one loaf of bread left lasted us three days <laughs> when we had no money before getting our paycheck at the end of the month yeah wow and this is jez Haddon. yes all yeah, right maybe you should be mentioning that on a podcast but <laughs> But so so you you're still at that at that moment in time. Even you're being humiliated, and you're and you said earlier about how you you know that you're not you don't feel particularly employable. You want to do things your way. Um, is there a moment at all where you, where you start to question? Oh, maybe I just got to kind of do it. I've, I've got to play the game here, and I, I've got to find my way because I want to make some money. And you at that point you're struggling. And um, uh, what what what? moved you from a place of um did, did you just basically have to toe the line play the game understand how it worked and get really good at it or was there something about else about you and your character type that meant that you recognized a different way of being able to play the game that that moved you on in a different kind of way uh good question and several parts to that question i i think it forced me the when you, when you start a new job, you're always given a bit amount of leeway, but they didn't take a lot of time. If you're on commission only, the managers realise pretty quickly if they have to jettison people or not. And I had no real alternative. I could have gone back to the accounting job, but I was actually enjoying what I was doing. I think I've always been a bit of a salesman. I've enjoyed a bit of spiel. And you had to follow, you know, you had to try and knuckle down and do the jobs. And I think at school, I tried to get away with, um, you know, coming up with a background of, you know, I was reasonably well brought up. We, none of us were poor when we yeah. grew up. You know, my sugar lumps thing is an extreme. You know, I was always well fed. I think Ray and I, we all, our parents were, you know, we all lived in a good area, went to decent schools. There wasn't like bullying or serious bullying or violence at schools. It was safe to grow up. But when you get to a job that you have no choice, if you don't make money, you don't eat. It's quite a focus. Uh, it wasn't for me at that point that I knew whether I wanted to do my own thing or not. I think there, I was still too young. And I think in this today, you see there's too much of people trying to work out what to do at university. I didn't have a clue what I really wanted to do until mm. I was in my mid-30s. Mm. Uh, but uh, the, the the money thing was behind it, and I didn't know how I was going to get there. I didn't. I pretty much didn't think that this job was going to get me. But it was it was it was a sort of stepping stone, and it ended up being a stepping stone to the next part of my life. It's, it sounds like the money just provided a focus yeah that's what yeah. i was thinking yeah, it, direction. It, yeah. direction it wasn't you know it wasn't it was just a direction and and a direction is better than no direction yeah yeah i just want to throw th- throw this in because it's going to be a bit of a tangent but um i think it will help in terms of the way we talk about some of the other topics as we as, you, as we kind of move on that 
when when you were talking about money earlier and you were saying that what what that meant to you um from quite a young age of like lifestyle having a good house being able to live by the sea and all, and and those other things that you commented on um i randomly ended up in a in a what is money workshop a couple of years ago and i'm looking at ray because i think he's probably he knows the same person that runs it so yeah. i guess have you been in one yeah charlie yeah 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 brilliant but it was a fascinating experience because what happened is there was maybe a hundred or so people in this room who had all last minute said i'm gonna they were all at a conference and i'm gonna go to this money what is money workshop and it so it was massively oversubscribed and um, one of the first things they did in that room was they said to people, um, I want you to tell the person next to you what money is to you. Mm. Um, what does it mean? What, what is it? Um, and so there was, a, there was fr from that moment, the conversation and the energy in the room rose to something I've never witnessed for that number of people who had never met each other before. Then what they did is they got um, a, a subselection of those people to go up and, and write down the, the, the key words that had come out onto this blackboard. And the thing I was really struck by is, and this is the, the point of the exercise, is that the number of different words on that blackboard was, the, 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 the variance was massive. And, and then what they did for the rest of the session was really just explore what does, the, the, the fact that money is, is, it means such different things to different people. And, and, and the argument they were making is they were saying money is it really a mirror it's um it's a way that you um that you you present yourself to the world and it's a story you tell tell yourself they back this up with all sorts of other um uh, asides around the actual money system and, and and the way that money's you know lent before it exists and all the rest of it but i just thought that th th there was something in that that really captured my imagination around what because of course what you do is you think what does it mean to me um, and, and, and I was asking myself those questions and kind of looking at how I compared with the other people in the room as you would do. But I was just wondering that if we, because I think the money thing's going to be a driver towards this, what, what, at, this at this point, what, what would you say, uh, what, what was it you were looking for? What, did, what do you think money meant to you? What, 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 what did it mean to me back then? Yeah. Because it, it doesn't sound like it was really safety. Um, it certainly wasn't safety. Was it, would you say it's success? Because a lot of people said success in this room, and like, was, was that was that part of? No, I think I think money. What is money to you changes with time, and also on your economic or circumstances. In those days, money was definitely you know before I was in my third. I think money was the physical things you got from it. A new stereo. So I remember when first check I bought myself a new stereo set I remember the first time I got decent check in Hong Kong I bought myself a Cartier watch so I think when you're younger money's very much a physical thing yeah. you know? that's if you're somebody without responsibilities if you talk to a young single mum money to her is her you know being able to pay the rent the kid having a roof over her head so I think it's very much a function of your age where you are in your life and career I think it becomes different things. It's no, it was certainly very different to me then than it is was late in, in the middling parts of my career and, and later in life. Um, and uh, so I, th I don't think you can answer that question. I think you can answer any point in time. Yeah. Uh, but it changes. For me, it certainly changed. And you can see that change. You oh, can yeah, recognize sure. it. Okay. Yeah. All right. And you know, we were talking about it before when I moved to Hong Kong, but then money became completely irrelevant because something else became sport and rugby in particular for me became more important than anything else. Mm. So let, let, let's just get to that point. So you're, you're at Liberty. You, you, you had a good experience. It, it was uh, a, a growing experience. A, a learning yeah. experience. That's right. A growing up experience. And then, you. D how long were you there before you made that I was decision? I there about 
two and a half years. Oh, wow, I didn't realise so it was de- that long. decent okay, amount of yeah, yeah. time. And I, I'd move, you know, they, you have these sales structures where you get, you got these little pins and you got a little diamond every time you hit your sales target and your silver pin went to a gold pin and, and this sort of stuff. They have a whole hierarchy to yeah, keep yeah. you tied in. Yeah. Um, but I'd, uh, actually, one of my best friends moved to Hong Kong and my dad's side of the family's from Hong Kong and uh, he went out in <coughs> November 88 and he kept telling me, I was, you know, we were good friends. He was telling me the fun time he was having in Hong Kong and he joined a rugby club and there was like girls and it was a great time and the weather was nice and it was shitty in the UK and it was raining and it was wet. And I still had an uncle who lived in Hong Kong and he was uh, retiring the following year. So I thought, oh, if I'm going to move to Hong Kong, why don't I do it while he's still there? So at least I've got a place to crash for the first couple of weeks I'm there or something like that. So I literally just told my boss before the Christmas party, I'm leaving uh, next year. I'm going to go to Hong Kong in February. It got delayed a bit anyway. I left to Hong Kong and I got there in uh, May of 89. Um, walked straight into a, another financial services job. I actually picked up a, uh, what was then, 15,000 Hong Kongs in those days, about £1,000 a month salary on wow. top of my commission, which was wow. unheard of for me. So <laughs> yeah, I could yeah. actually afford to pay some rent. <laughs> so I shared a flat with Miles, uh, my rugby mate. And, but then I, I, was, I was 89, I was 21 years old. Um, I just found the whole colonial, it was pretty colonial in those days still, rugby, social, drinking scene, far much for, more interesting than work. And I had a salary, so the pressure was off to uh, <laughs> feed myself. Um, but I was pretty, you know, I was a decent salesman and people in Hong Kong had a lot more money and I wasn't selling insurance policies anymore, I was selling investment stuff. So it was still investment products, but a much better standard of product. So I felt better about what I was doing, but I was more interested in playing rugby. You know, I played for a local club and over the years managed to get decent at rugby and played international rugby. Wow, um, really? Yeah, played 20-odd times for Hong Kong rugby, played some teams like Fiji and Canada and the States. So I was never a great rugby player. You know, I'd never played for England or anything like yeah. that, but I was good enough to play for Hong Kong at the time, and Hong Kong's well-located at the Sevens. So <coughs> rugby became more important, and Hong Kong Rugby Union made a lot of money from the Hong Kong Sevens. So our tour, we went to Hong Kong for a rugby-playing population of very small got to tour great places so I went with a Hong Kong team to Sri Lanka and Singapore and Thailand oh, and, and, they, and, they, and they, they sort of became your family didn't they yeah and a lot of my really good friends are the rugby players I made during those uh, those this early is, this years. is Valley Rugby Club yeah Valley Rugby Club in Hong Kong and um, yeah I learned uh, just and I learned a lot from actually the Kiwis and Aussies with their, their attitude and particularly the Kiwis to rugby was like nothing I'd ever seen their, their focus on rugby you know there's a reason why that country wins the world cup and wins you know, is the, i think it's the sing, statistically the it's a terrible word winningest sports team of all time yeah. are the all blacks because they're focused and you you learn from that and i and i loved getting better at rugby so rugby became everything and luckily i had a boss who was a big sportsman so as long as i did some sales still he'd let me travel on tour so yeah money did not become a focus for a, for a long time uh, i'd say probably till i was late 20s and i started thinking hmm, i'm not gonna be playing rugby forever um and i probably need to focus a bit more on work did, it, was did, there a, was there a, sorry Ray, was there was, was there a particular goal with uh, the rugby side of things i wanted to play for hong kong that was certainly a goal when i realized there was an opportunity and it took me i think three or four years to get good enough. we there was a sort of hong kong um, part asian hong kong asian team first they were trying to build up the sort of small amongst the local community the chinese community and i'm part chinese 
so I played for the Hong Kong Chinese team first and as I got a bit bigger and stronger and better at what I was doing I finally got to play for Hong Kong and that that was really good fun playing in you know World Cup qualifying tournaments we never made it but it was still good yeah, really yeah. good to play and I was fit uh, playing playing with and against really good players and when you're when you're at your physical you know sort of peak it's it's great to test yourself like that and I love the challenge and the physicality of rugby uh, that the it's, it's it's more f physical in a way these days certainly they're a lot fitter but it, the game was a lot dirtier in those days which I sort of quite enjoyed you know punching kicking <laughs> rucking you know it was nothing better than getting an opposing scrum off on your side and you could legally ruck the crap out of them if they got on top of the ball um, so that sort of thing was fun but they have made the game safe which is a good thing especially the head knocks because there's too many you know, the history has now proven that all those knocks in American football and everything else are just not good for you uh, so yeah but it was a no, it, no real specific target. It, it seems to me, and so when you stopped rugby at that, that level, anyway, <clears throat> that's when your business career started to take off. Yeah, I started looking. I think it sort of crossed at the same time. I was in financial services throughout this. I'd um, worked for a Swiss bank for a period. Uh, I got laid off. Uh, they they fired the guy that had hired me, and then they decided to fire everybody else that worked underneath him. Uh, so I'd been there for not very long, six months, and got a big payout because I'd got a bonus based on my contract. So I'd, this big check for the first time, which I uh, didn't know what to do with, I ended up buying out or the bulk of my partners in a financial services firm and tried to build the financial services practice I was in. And that, that led me to my first discovery in business, which was it, it's really hard. You know, businesses are built on people and where you have to rely on the number of people to scale your business. And we're working in commission-only sales. Your salesmen always arguing because they want more commission. You want to keep more because you're trying to run a business, pay the rent. And I realized that if you can build a business that scales without being directly proportional to the number of staff you mm. have, it's got to be a good thing. It, it wasn't anything particularly scientific. It just came through the frustration of trying to hire, build a business of salespeople. It was yeah, tough. you're just trying to solve a problem. Yeah. So in and that was around dot, dot com area, so, so era. So the same time as dog dot com and all these crazy mm. dot com stories. We set up a dot com to provide back end services to other financial planners, so we could leverage other people's work. So that was my first, I guess, attempt at setting my own business out. Uh, yeah, there was certainly that was technology based. What was your, what was your role in that? Um, I was the founder along with. Uh, two other guys we set the business up it was called navglobal.com which still exists still exists some 20 plus years later wow. uh, has grown to be a you know, good little niche business um the yeah it was it was early days of this is 99 so websites were terrible you used to have things like copernicus website search which would search other search engines it was really slow and clunky and the coding for websites was terrible and you were still every, everything was Microsoft in those days. There was niche Apple for designers, and everything else was um, probably Microsoft. No, no Google at that point. No, no. Google. This is pre Google. No. Um, the first you had ask, ask, ask Jeeves, ask Jeeves, and, and there was Alta Vista. An, yeah, Alta Vista. Yeah. So there was all these early search engines, um, and, and, and and that 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 that's the new area. Okay, so financial services is being around forever, um, but the internet hadn't been. So you're attracted to that, or did you just stumble across it? I'd always been interested in computers. My father was a computer scientist, so I'd grown up with Dad coming back from RAE, and they had one of the two Cray supercomputers in the UK at the time. One was with Ford Motors, the other mm. was RAE Farnborough. 
and you're talking, so this is in the mid-80s, and he would come home with a suitcase. I'm not kidding you, it was a suitcase. And he opened it up, and this is the first time I'd ever seen what we would call a modem today. And he would dial up with our, you know, the old pick up the hand phone, mm. the handset, yeah, dial yeah. the number, and he'd put the phone into the suitcase, and it would connect because you had to book your time on the computer. So he'd get one hour between 10 and 11 p.m. That was his time, and then he was loading up, and he'd load up his program, and then it would generate the results. And so I got interested in computers. Not, I was never a hardcore coder. I, you know, I think I learned my frustration with coding when in those days we had BBC Acorn ZX81 ZX Spectrums with the computers that you had. And computing in those days was get buying a computing magazine, typing in line for line yeah. a three hundred yeah. line program, and getting it to do a, you know do a space invader walk across the screen, not, not do anything like shoot it. And you had some it was the arcade games were around, so obviously computing was already well underway, but personal computing was still in its infancy. So I was always interested in technology, but I hadn't really worked out a way to. And we used computers, and obviously by then mobile phones were coming in. Uh, but the NAV thing was the first time I'd actually put money aside, hired programmers, tried to build a database, had to integrate it with a website, had to work out syncing, had to deal with poor bandwidth. You're talking Asia in, in, in 99, 2000. We had customers in Thailand, Indonesia. You'd dial up modem still in speed, you know, 9K, mm. 18K, 28K. So if you're syncing any data, it has to be really small. So weirdly, you know, people have got lazy with coding because it doesn't really matter what size things are. Whereas back in the day, you had to get your code as tight as possible because you had very little computing power or bandwidth to deal with it. Um, yeah, but so I wouldn't say I really fell into it. it just uh, timing more than anything else. There was a lot of noise was the dot-com business. But you, but, but you spotted it. And, yes. and a lot of people would have been there in the same position but wouldn't have spotted it as an opportunity they would just seen it as something and you you mentioned luck earlier because you uh, and, and i was this was this luck or was it intent uh i i think luck plays a bit i'm i'm asian part asian so i'm very superstitious on many things and i think luck um has a big part of a lot of your life and i still go and see a fortune teller every year uh, and you know there are predicted good years and bad years and it's quite bizarre whether they become self-fulfilling prophecies or not as to how much <coughs> luck plays a part in it and the nav business was not a bigger commercial success as some of the things i got involved in later but it still exists today it's got a really good dedicated team with lots of happy clients but it was certainly the first business I tried to build from scratch in a tech space. And it gave me a good foundation for what would be really important later on. Mm. Um, a lot of mistakes made. Uh, but you learn. That's how you learn. You learn from your mistakes. So uh, I'm trying to understand the driver uh, for you. And it, it doesn't seem that it's been money. It, 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 but it, I'm wondering, there's certainly a competitive streak in you, for sure. Yeah. You know, you, you, you don't play rugby for Hong Kong if you're not competitive um, and but there's also this learning thing you like to learn don't you I do I did actually I've got, got a bit lazy now but yeah. for sure I was particularly in computing because I the time this business was growing uh, it was the beginning of uh, things like e-trade and uh, computerized stock trading was just beginning in the US T, T, T price I can't remember the name of the other one but e-trade was the big model everybody was looking at as one of the businesses that came out of the dot-com area that survived and obviously went on to become a huge company this is pre-skype or those sort of things so you but i wasn't it wasn't like trying to compete with them it was like probably partly laziness i was trying to work i don't want to have to deal with salespeople anymore how can i yeah. grow without having to hire salespeople? so i think the growth this way say luck it was 
it was trying to fix specific problems that I didn't want to have to hire more salespeople and have arguments over sales commissions. So how do I leverage other people's sales teams? What can I introduce into a business that I knew something about at the time, which was financial services? That's how this came about. And was fortunate to have partners that understood the technology better than I did. And that's, that's when I say luck, I got lucky because our CTO from them went on with me later on in life to help like the first stage of our, one of our gaming businesses, which really grew. That's that's why I asked so earlier when I asked that leading question of what was your role. What I really meant was, um, <clears throat> I see there's a, there's a common theme around, um, you know, a leadership team in a business and those businesses that are successful. Um, I think there's kind of a complementary set of characters that are required in order for even the best idea to go into the world and to really scale well. And um, and I think there's something in knowing and understanding yourself, and then deliberately or being lucky. Um, complementing your weaker areas with other people that are really strong in those weaknesses. So do, do you feel as though, are you are you cognizant of that? Very. I am a terrible manager of people. I know that. I'm much more of an ideas, see an opportunity, identify the opportunity, work out how much money it would need to, to fund that opportunity. I was always good at raising money because I was a salesman, so that's one thing I was good at. Uh, but I was terrible at managing a team of people. I'm terrible at admin and detail shocking as ray will tell you but i have been fortunate <laughs> to be at it as well so <laughs> <laughs> being fortunate in throughout of uh, sometimes through luck sometimes through good hiring or just good timing of working with people that i could work alongside me and fill those gaps mm. you know i um we'll talk about some of the business later but the the guys that were really good at doing the managing a programming team or the guys who were just good at dealing with staff i'm still to this day horrendous hr related matters career paths appraisals I'm terrible at all of those things. But you know, when you grow bigger businesses, you know, it, it goes way, we, you know, we actually hired CEOs to run those businesses that were professionals at running large mm. companies. When you get into thousands of employees, it's way beyond my ability. doesn't mean I can't get involved in a strategic decision here or there. So, but yes, I was always good at some things and not others. I was more than happy to delegate. Mm. Never had a problem with delegating. No, no, because they're doing the bits that you don't want to do. Yeah, some people are control freaks and want to control everything. And I think there's certain parts of businesses that you need to sit on top of, very much so to get to a certain size. But there's others you should let go as soon as you realize you're going to do a crap job at it. Yeah, okay. So so you're with this sort of fledgling tech business, um, what, what happens next? Uh, that was... 99 and we worked on that till well, I was working on it, it was 2001 2002 and that business was growing weren't making a lot of money doing it but it was growing and that was the year I got married in 2002 I got married to a Filipino lady who's my wife and mother of our two kids uh, and we got married in Bali in 2002 um, I was doing reasonably well in finance it was okay so she married a she'd uh, separated from a very successful banker at one of the big banks and ended up uh, getting engaged and married to me and three weeks after we got married I got sued for uh, a lot of money millions of US dollars uh, from a property company I was involved in when I was much younger I'd have done property as a sideline in Indochina Cambodia Vietnam at, and what, at what point were you doing were you doing property from about 93 onwards 94 so I was about 27 in those days, I was love to travel with the rugby and everything else. So I ended up going to visiting Cambodia for a friend who was opening a bar where the UN were there actually earlier, 91, 92. Um, and I was just fascinated by Cambodia. You offered me a job running it. 
for the FCC in Cambodia. Yeah. Really, I can't yeah, remember. Yeah. <laughs> Should have taken it, right? So, <laughs> so <laughs> we've gone a different direction. We raised some money initially amongst, well, he raised some money, built a bar, went over for the bar opening. I thought, Christ, this is this was a country that had obviously just gone through the Khmer Rouge atrocities. The UN were there to rebuild the country, to re-establish property ownership. And it was a comfort country in its infancy. It was amazing. It was really interesting to see. And at the same time, Vietnam was just coming out of the communist era, was allowing businesses in, Western businesses in for the first time, and also Burma, Myanmar these days, was you could just start doing some joint ventures there. So I just happened to be there, young time, no family. So we started running around investing in all sorts of different things, buying apartments, restaurants. Sometimes you could own the land, sometimes you couldn't. Um, and I made a lot of mistakes, did some things wrong in those days, and there's no way of dressing. I did things as a director of a company I shouldn't have done. And I got sued for it, rightly so, years later. And I was very fortunate to have uh, an extremely wealthy friend who worked for, used to work in Tokyo in the markets, then ended up working for a hedge fund. And I'd helped him out with a few things, but he grudgingly lent me the money uh, to get me out of trouble. It was a civil case. It wasn't a criminal thing, but you know, I could have probably gone bankrupt or would have been made bankrupt, which is not great on your, your thing. My parents didn't have that sort of money. So he lent me the money. How, how did your wife feel about it? She wasn't very happy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but you learned—that's the, that's the really? obvious answer. Yeah, <laughs> you, but she's Catholic, and you know, marriage, uh, good times and bad, yeah. became a really interesting test. We've been together about three years beforehand, but you really learn your partner's character when you go into a relationship in one thing, and then three weeks later you're screwed I mean we pawned her engagement ring at certain points when we had no money I lived off her Cathay Pacific salary for a good six seven months till other businesses got going um, yeah well it wasn't an easy time and of course when you go broke and you have to work like a dog you don't get to see very much of each other so it's the toughest times of our marriage are probably the first two years when I worked insane hours uh, to get the next business off the ground uh, and, and then so so this friend of yours lent you money to get out of that situation yes and then but the arrangement was that you pay it back yeah and but i realized that i couldn't do that this the business we were doing in the financial services business at the time was never going to nav business was never going to make me that amount of money quickly so i looked around as to what you could do and strangely enough one part of my family has been involved in the Macau casino industry for years and part of that family was into online gambling and then strangely enough at the same time a group called Betfair that's become a huge business now in the UK was quite small in those days we're looking to expand in Asia and I had certain connections to uh, various people in the Asian gaming community so I, I sort of literally fell into talk about luck mm. right place right time uh, into online gambling which in those days was very primitive because again because bandwidth was very expensive and, and internet was slow, mobile phones were very primitive, uh, but uh, ended up working with Betfair and working with a company called Playtech and, a, and another company. And uh, through uh, some crazy development stuff in the space of two years, we made began to make a lot of money and I managed to pay my friend back within two and a half years. So I paid him back three million odd dollars within uh, two and a bit years. Uh, we managed to build the foundations of two. I worked with Playtech, which wasn't, I didn't found that company, but I joined them a couple of years after and helped them in, in Asia and some stuff in the UK. But we, we, I sort of was working for two companies at the same time, one called Playtech, one called Asian Logic, which is one I founded with uh, two friends. We started with three people in the Asian Logic business working out of my apartment in Hong Kong uh, to save costs uh, with one secretary that still looks after us today. And uh, 
that's now employs you know two hundred two thousand people plus. So, I mean, this is quite a. Uh, did you know you were going to pay that money that's back? What, that's exactly what I was thinking. Did, and did he know you were going to pay? No, that he back? didn't know. He, did he think you were going to? Probably not, uh, but he he knew I'd at least try. Yeah, and I. I had previously, you know, in my I come across my financial services days. So he had invested in various schemes. He'd bought some properties in London uh, that we used to sell. You know, brokers used to come to bring properties to Hong Kong. We would introduce them to our clients. We'd get a commission for selling the property, then do the mortgage, and you get a commission on the mortgage. And there was a lot of people buying property in the mid '90s from Hong Kong because of the '97 handover time. So it was a great time to be in Hong Kong. So we all made quite a lot of money selling, pro uh, working with property developers, doing the mortgage packages for UK properties sold to Hong Kong residents. So he'd, he'd made some money out of the things that I got him into invest into. He'd also lost some because he'd invested in some of our Indochina property stuff right, yeah. or we got it tied up. So to make sure, but we were relatively close friends, um, and he was worth. Uh, he was a wealthy guy. He passed away, unfortunately, from cancer a few years ago. So we miss him, but uh, you know, I wouldn't have survived without him. What, uh, so if if that hadn't have happened, so as in, if you hadn't have been sued, or if you were sued and there wasn't somebody who could have supported you in the way that he did, and and you ended up bankrupt or whatever, what what do you think would have happened? So was it enough of a driver for you to then go on and have this next level of success? It was actually the urge to pay him back, which was yeah. one of the huge drivers mm. for me, uh, because he was a friend, and I know he wasn't happy about lending me the money. He could afford it, but he wasn't happy about doing it, because there was no fixed way of me paying him back. Mm. Uh, so I'll forever be for grateful for Keith, uh, and a few of my friends know who he is, uh, for what he did for me at the time. Uh, and it put a strain on our relationship. And I, uh, when you borrow money off a friend and you, you learn that later on when you're the one doing the lending, hmm. uh, it really puts a stress on your relationship. So we sort of fell out for some time until I uh, paid him back. Um, and then, you know, over the years, things became much better again. But it does put stress on a relationship. But do you, do you think, what do you think would have happened? Like, do, 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 Can you see that that had, that, that came with um, the upside of giving you this drive that then went on to maybe... Um, encourage you to take a level of risk that you wouldn't have done otherwise I, I think my level of risk taking was was before but even before then I, I was always prepared to take risk I was always prepared to invest everything I had and borrow some money to or raise money from investors to do things so I don't think it increased my aptitude for risk but it certainly gave me the incentive to find something to pay him back um but I, I I can't say what it, what if because no, it's course, an impossible yeah. Yeah, yeah. position to put. It was certainly a big factor in wanting to make as much money as quickly as possible for a specific reason of paying him back. Yeah, so you had a real motivation. Yeah. You had a goal. It was very very clear. Yeah, and that was always there. Though you get lazy because when you start making money, not every penny I made went back to him. That was a cause of stress. As I started, you know, you start making good money, you start buying a few things, yeah. and he's like, hey. You, you owe me money yeah. still. What? I suddenly see you've done this or you've been doing that. What about my money? Yeah. Um, so until I'd got that paid off, there, there was that stress. And th that's always a danger when you've lent money to friends. Yeah, but that was two or three years. Yes. Quite impressive. I, I mean, it, it seems to me anyway. It was <laughs> It was purely, that was timing of internet, the internet gambling explosion in Asia as, and in several parts of the world happened at that time and we happened to be in the right place, right time. Um, and with with some really good software people from the Playtech side and good partners in people like Playtech, uh, Betfair in the early days. And then um, from that point, uh, my understanding is you, you got to a point where you were you know, financially free, whatever that means, but n not having to worry 
about your future for you and your family financially pretty quickly right uh let's think 2000 we floated playtech in 2005 i think it was so yeah but about so yeah three three four years later i would say it took another four years because then the first of the two big gambling companies i was involved in went public in the uk uh that's we did that was playtech that listed in i think it was 05 i can't remember now i think it was 05 uh, that was listed, I think, around a 900 million valuation at the time, and we had a had a chunk of the equity in in that business. Uh, but doing doing when you take a company public, you do the same presentation a hundred times mm. in ten days in three different countries. You know, we did it in the states, then Ireland, then London, and we were lucky with Plato. Plato is what you call an easy roadshow. It was tough in the beginning, but became very popular, and very oversubscribed. So by the end of it, you. We it was sold over many times. I think we went over four times oversubscribed. We didn't even go to Scotland. We were so tired by the end of it. We didn't go to Scotland. The brokers were upset us because you got to go. We got good clients. I said, look, just send the analysts. And the analysts went without the two principals, myself and the CFO, and they still raised the money. So that was actually again a good example. But we took that company public six months later. The US banned online gaming through a, a, a UEGA, uh, which banned payment processing for gaming. So your stock price, you go public and your stock price is down 40% overnight. Uh, what do you do? And the US was our biggest market at the time and a uh, big fight internally because it wasn't quite clear what was happening in the US. Do you keep going in the US or do we block, You know, do we do 100% the legal thing come out, mm. which is the safest? Um, and we, we came out because of the main shareholder at the time just wasn't comfortable with US risk and we came out and then you have to really refocus what do you refocus your business on to make up for the money you've just raised in your share price and the fact that you've lost 40% of your revenues overnight and we readjusted a strategy came up with something that worked and fortunately enough it worked and we managed to get loads more clients in the UK and other parts of the world Some questions to be asked about the due diligence team uh, <laughs> It was actually quite uh, well There'd been there were several really big companies like Party Poker at the time, which had gone public, and they were they were valued at around seven billions. I think it was four, five, six, seven billion dollars at the time, and they'd only gone public a couple of years earlier. And then there, you know, they were a huge company, by far and away the biggest gambling company, online gambling company at the time, and they were still putting out you know called update advices, and it just wasn't expected. It was a potential risk. Uh, we made quite a lot of money on that trade as one of the hedge funds, funnily enough, that I dealt with actually anticipated it wow. and said, what do we invest in? And they wanted to do what's called a pair trade on something that would do well if the US comes out and something that would do badly, they short one, go along the other. So a few people saw it coming, but most didn't. But it, so it sounds like, so you, my question before around um, not, not having to really worry about money again, sounds like you'd, you'd reach that point. So, so, Again, it maybe comes back to to what Ray was um, coming to a moment ago. Around uh, that's not the thing that's going to then keep you going. That you know, you, you know that it's not it's not about getting more because you've you've definitely ticked a lot of the boxes that you talked about at the beginning of this conversation. Yeah. But I wonder if maybe uh, are there other big goals that then you're resetting yourself and almost losing that forty percent? Is it like well, okay, I've got another goal now? With Playtech, it was we were the last of the major casino softwares come to the market, and we were the smallest, but we believed we were the best. We had the best technology and the most advanced. And we come to the market last, so you see the mistakes they've made. And we got such a hard time from the incumbents because the, the, there were Israeli founders, and myself, based in Asia, was helping on the Asian end, and we were sort of driving into the traditional markets controlled by these big Canadian companies and the things. So we weren't very well liked. 
but it was definitely the success and competition. And we grew it to the biggest company through the C, uh, the, the CEO at the time before me was amazing, an amazing guy. And he, he, I remember when we, he, he left pre the IPO, he was burned out because he'd worked so hard for the, for the time. And we had to replace him with four people and those four people combined <laughs> oh, still weren't wow. as good as him on his own. Wow. Um, but with Plate, it wasn't my, it wasn't a business I'd founded, but I was happy to make money, but happy to be successful. But definitely with my own business, which was still running in parallel Asian logic. When I got, went off to do help Plate go public, the guy that was the COO took over from me, became the CEO. He was actually much better at admin and the company continued to grow. And two years later, so my target really was to take my own business public. Uh, that was so the, mm. and the success of achieving that. And I think you, you measure as, as you know, my view of business, there are, you know, what do you do for the so, social side of things? But success in business purely from a financial term is based on what are your net profits? What do you make net profit? Not what your gross sales are, the number of years you've got. How much money do you make and how much do you pay back to your shareholders? I think for me is a real important measure. And we've grown Asian Logic from a pretty small company. It was doing well. And we managed to take it public in the last week of December 2007. So we were the last company to go public before the... Uh, financial crisis kicked mm. off in, in January 2008 and the world blew up and uh, we had money in the bank we were profitable Asia was less affected by the, the financial and our share price was down like over the next year went down 75% and no matter what we did uh, to you know we were delivering our numbers our forecasts and uh, but the people were selling anything they could sell in the financial crisis so one of the other co-founders said Tom bugger this let's take it private and I'm like, no, we've taken, we, oh, you know, it's a bit of ego here. We've taken mm. this thing public. And I've just worked really hard we to do it. We've worked really yeah. hard. I've done another I thought that was the goal, yeah. <laughs> but in a really strange financial circumstances, we've uh, this happens when you get market turmoil, uh, taking the company private. We, 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 certain institutions have come in when we've gone public. And two of the institutions that had come in at the time of IPO su- supported one of the co-founders, said, Tom, take the company private. You're not getting value for uh, you know what you're doing um, take the company private use some of the money you've raised pay out the shareholders that uh, you know at the price you, know, you have to pay them what the, cu- the mm. current market price is uh, and then take it private so the brokers that took us public took us private and then we found ourselves in the position of being a private company making the same amount of money with a lot of money in the bank left over from the IPO. How, how long after? What's the gap between uh, taking 2009, it? two years. So two years. You less took than it pub- two years. Less Public two, in right. 2007, end of 2007, private in 2009. Yeah. I can't remember when in 2009, yeah. but definitely less than two years. So we then actually, then it t- then you learn one valuable lesson, difference between a public company and a private company. When you're a public company, you do a lot because you're worrying about what your shareholders in the market think. When you're a private company, you do just what's right for the business. Mm. And we invested in the areas we thought were right, even though it would cost profits. We changed a lot of tactic. And the company exploded. Its growth went uh, over, you know, it grew in net profit size by tenfold in the space of three, four years. So it grew enormously. Uh, lots of problems with growth, uh, staff in particular, and how to manage ever-expanding numbers of staff. But you realize that being private in some businesses, and it's called gaming in unregulated markets, and Asia's termed as an unregulated market versus the UK when there's very clear regulations about everything. In Asia in those days, it was pretty gray what you could do, what you couldn't do, what the financial risks were. But that sort of business, you're better being private because you do what's right for the business and its shareholders, you know, private shareholders, not what the market wants to hear mm. and things like that. So you, and that was a real test for me saying, Jesus, if we... 
you just focus on doing what's right look what happens with the profits and again we were lucky I have to say we were lucky because the gambling exploded further in Asia it's amazing how lucky you've been over your career isn't it <laughs> it's just amazing amazing just such lucky Tom timing lucky, timing. Lu- lucky Tom <laughs> Yeah, you, you know, we, we, we were lucky, um, but had a really good team, a really good team, good management team. And, and today, the three founders, we've all stepped back from our main business and it's run by other people. And um, they are facing some really challenging times, but still delivering good numbers. Uh, it's And you, 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 you have to learn to step back because at a certain point, you just can't do everything anymore. And I, I, work, I still remember the year when I, 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 we started the gambling. I worked an average of 18 hours a day, and I think I worked it out at the time, worked 340 days that year, an average wow. of 18 hours a day. I know I took the weekend of the Hong Kong Sevens off, <laughs> came back to see the boys and play golf, so I took four or five days off then. Um, but I was also traveling con- uh, you know, nearly all the time because I was traveling around the region. We were setting up things in Bali in the Philippines over those t- couple of years. It was tough. And did, really did, tough you, did, to did you feel like you were making a sacrifice by living that kind of life? Because th- th- this has become a lot more of a hot topic at the moment, but I think maybe five, 10 years ago, it was just assumed in the same way that we were talking about the insurance industry and, and how you could you know, pretty much do what you wanted in terms of incentivization. I didn't. I didn't. I probably was making a sacrifice and it was the relationship with my wife but if I'm being blunt and honest which is not an easy thing to say at that time my priority was far more making money growing the business than developing a fantastic relationship with my wife at that time you don't realize the importance of partners and we didn't have children then and children till a bit further down the line but then all that mattered to me my thinking was if I don't raise the money I can't I can't pay back Keith I can't grow this business I can't enjoy the life I want Okay, Chai's still young. My wife is still working as well, so we're just you know, she's going to have to put up with me not being around very much. We'll try and get through this period, and then things will become better. But and did it did, did it feel so when you reflect back and you and you think about it? It's, you know, it sounds like you you literally working every hour there was. But did it feel like work? No, it did, didn't feel like a sacrifice. So, yeah, I, the, I, I enjoy, I'm a bit of a sort of masochist when it comes to working. My view is to. Yeah, I didn't mind it, and I didn't. I, for me, it wasn't a sacrifice. And you, you, it's so much your own businesses. It's what you put into it. And in the beginning, there's no, you know, you don't have a lot of money. You'd raise some money from investors, but you had to pay salaries. You had to pay for bandwidth. There wasn't a lot of money to go around. We were trying to make money wherever we could, cut, save money wherever we could. So one thing you could do was put as much time as possible. And I didn't think it was a sacrifice. I had no, no children. You yeah, know, yeah. life only really changes like that with children that you can't not give time to. Mm. Um, so yeah, I was I was definitely going out less. I was uh, play, I was get I was too old to play good rugby, so I was quite happy to give up, play less rugby, play social rugby. So yes, I sacrificed a bit of social rugby, but I didn't care. And travel and holidays and time with friends, that kind of thing. I still travelled a lot with my job, so I got to see people in different countries all the time. So I'd always see these guys a couple of times a year, and I'd see my friends around Asia. So I certainly didn't see enough of my family, my mum and dad. You know, but kids, I think when you leave your parents, there's that, there's that period where yeah. you really lose touch for a while and then you come back again when you have kids, you spend it, then the relationship starts up again. So did I sacrifice some relationships? Yes. Did it matter in the long term? Probably not, I don't think. There was definitely issues with my kids, which we can talk about later, which were an issue. Um, but my wife and I worked through it and we're still happily, as any, as any happily married couple <laughs> yeah. are today. But it's, it's useful to hear you saying that because I think that the narrative around overwork at the moment is it, it's seen to be um, such, a, such a negative thing. Um, but I think often what gets missed in the, in the conversation is, yeah, but what, what exactly is work? 
because at the point when work blurs the line between life uh, you can't really overwork life because you're just living it that's one of the things I can't stand and I can't remember who said it there's no such thing as work life and home life there's life and it's yeah. up to you to decide how you want to balance that <coughs> now of course it's easy for somebody like me to say that but if you have let's say you've, you've left you've had no skills no luck you aren't smart enough to be a rocket scientist you're forced into a job where you may have not have a lot of choices so you have to caveat what we say here but it's up to people how much how hard they work generally if they can I mean it's the UK at the moment I don't believe has got massive unemployment problems Hong Kong's got full employment or close to it so you could, there's always a job for you if you want to do it and how hard you work and if you take a second job I think it's really up to you oh, so. I think there's a, there's a big difference as well between working for yourself and understanding Correct. exactly why you're doing it mm. and working for somebody else who is sort of saying look you've got to do this you haven't got a choice yeah or not <coughs> even feeling as though you've got a license to think think that you could have your own thing you know because yeah that's right absolutely and, and let's face it most people work for somebody else mm -hmm. yeah i think that what the that, you know and it's easy to say yeah just take a second job if you're a single mum again and you've got kids at home and you've got to have a babysitter and you can't just do an evening job working on your computer at home because you've got to look after your kids that's it yeah and then by the time they've got to bed you've got to do the washing and the laundry and all, you know it's so i think it's again very circumstance driven that 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 point you know how much you know, overworked there are definitely people that overworked and i look at people in hong well hong kong where you don't have a social security net yeah, there's no social security for old people you see people in their 70s and 80s working in the mornings recycling cardboard boxes uh you know they're collecting cardboard that officers have thrown out things like that and you're like jesus i wouldn't want my grandmother doing that but but you know work provides a lot in our life you know, we meet new people. We maybe get some exercise when we're. It's it's not all bad, and I think that's the problem I've got with the work life balance. That it assumes that work is bad and life is good, and and actually, if you can, if you can enjoy what you do and keep it in balance, it, it can be really positive thing. I'm pretty sure that the the research says in the UK that for your average man, um, who retires and doesn't have any other kind of clear way to spend his time it's five years to death apparently yeah so there's there's quite a it's strong quite correlation it? yeah it's really frightening <coughs> and so i think your point of you know work at its best it provides all sorts of purpose to an individual well this, an, th th this is work i'm working now are you are you getting paid <laughs> well we're, 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 no <laughs> hey, you got a cup of tea <laughs> yeah there you go yeah <laughs> uh, but it's it's you know it can be great no i agree yeah it can 100%. be really good and, I, and that's absolutely what i'm sensing of everything you've said so far tom even back to the the very early days that you were describing it doesn't sound like there's real kind of hardship in in the in the stuff that you're talking about it sounds like and i don't know if that's positive attitude or whether it's just actually you would you you're just in environments where it's like this is great i love having this goal and learning and meeting new people and having this challenge in front of me yeah again i think it's uh, this is why i say i come back to luck ray and i come from the same hometown in farnham and we all meet usually once a year in farnham as well and we will of often comment we've gone back to a local pub in farnham and there's Ray and his family that live in Brighton and there's a whole load of us that live in Asia and there's one that lives in Canada and there's one that lives over here. So our sort of circle of friends, some of them have stayed very local, some have gone international. But weirdly enough, all of our circle of friends have done reasonably okay. Most of them didn't go to university, but uh, some have done better than others, but everybody's okay. 
yeah, I go. We go to the same pub, and we'll see people we went to school with that never left Farnham, mm. that have been a builder ever since, and still live week to week. Mm. I think, and you think they went to the same schools, they went, they lived in some, roughly the same areas. What makes those people not want to? And some of them seem really happy doing it. You know, they're happy still doing it, smile on their face. Others are miserable fuckers. And oh, sorry for reference, but. You, what what is the reason that explains people moving overseas, other countries, other part of town, building their own businesses, or working for other people, doing okay, versus the person that wants to stay at home and is happy, still labouring at I, age fifty? I, I think I think it's a brilliant question, and I think it's it's probably what Neil and I have been talking about for years. And but it's something about curiosity. It's something about wanting to know what that food what sushi tastes like what you know what it's like to be in hong kong what it's well, it like go, it goes right back to what you said at the beginning of um imagining yourself having a life where you've got this nice house living by the beach it's not it, it, you're not just you're not okay just watching the tv you want to feel what that's like so so it, 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 it's it, you want to it, experience it a, rather than look at it yeah there's a drive there's a drive to do to do something yeah, that's I think definitely in Ray too. Some people, I don't know what causes it. You are driven to whether it's hard work or focus or research, whatever your goal is. You know, my father's was to you know do science things, you know, discover things, prove things. That was his driver in life, and he worked really hard to do that. And mine was making money and being then building businesses. But maybe a good example of that was um, we sponsored a darts tournament in Japan. Uh, a while back with some friends and so matchroom bought out all the darts players and there you've got a demographic there which is i think unbelievable look at like somebody like michael van gerwen currently the best darts player in the world mm. i got to spend three four days with these guys you know sitting around socially chatting it was really interesting he was a tiler making whatever 200 euros a week something like tiling in holland and he's now just picked up recently half a million quid for winning the world championships the other day at the Ali Pali, wherever, wherever they were playing the other day. And I remember saying to him, how come, what made you go from tiling to playing darts, being a reasonably good darts player, knowing that you wanted to do that? And he said, I wanted a bigger house. <laughs> that, that, and he just, you know, obviously he's, he, you have to have a degree of talent, but we're yeah. not talking about an Anthony Joshua honed level of fitness and you know years and years well of he's dedication. pretty fit compared to a lot of darts or players. michael van gerwen yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'm surprised he doesn't strain his jaw muscle sometimes <laughs> with those celebrations at the end yeah but so so that's really about having a goal isn't it it's just having mm. understanding why it goes back to what we were saying earlier it's about understanding why you're doing something because if you don't understand why it's very difficult to get yourself motivated i do something every five years anthony robbins which is a, a lot of hoopla some people would say no we like like it we like it no we're converted somebody sent me 20 years ago i think time is one of his courses anyway which is about time management and goal setting and i think goal setting is really important some people agree with it some don't some say goals is always looking backwards not forwards but i think it's an important part of process of you know planning your life and what things you want to achieve short term medium term long term everybody develops their own ways of it but that for me and i listen to it every five years just to remind myself and the lessons he gives and the th- points he makes i think are very valid a lot of those things in that course and i make some of my junior employees 
listen to it when they, when they come and say, I don't know what to do next, don't want to go, don't know what to do here, how do I do this? And I said, what, what are your goals? It's really, you know, what, what do you want to achieve? And if you ask people in their mid-20s to mid-30s, which is when you're sort of still making a lot of decisions, I think it's a really important exercise to go through. Well, because if you don't have a goal, you don't have direction and then you can't make decisions because, you know... The, well, the it, world just happens to you. Well, it, 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 you go with the flow. Yes. Yeah, and you don't ever swim against the flow because you don't know where you're pointing. Mm. So you get taken. And you said you've been doing that for some time now. Oh, yeah. Tw- I think I first listened to that Tony Robbins thing... It was in those days it was on CDs. It was like a big plastic pack. <laughs> yeah, God yeah. knows how many CDs. So that's got to be yeah, over twenty to over twenty years now. So I do it every five years. I do it next in twenty three, two thousand twenty three. I think I do. And no, and twenty. When did I do it? Two years ago, I did it. So with the kind of goals that you set over those twenty years, have you achieved all of them? No, no, nowhere near to achieving all of them. Um, these days, I think for the last ten years or so, I break down my goals. I want to achieve by quarter each year by and then basically by the end of the year and the end of next year i don't ever set goals these days beyond two years because the world i'm in i I think it just changes too Too quickly quickly, yeah Yeah. but some i have as daily reminders things i want to be doing with my kids or things i want to do for health i remind myself daily so i've got what kind of things have you got would you mind sharing some what daily or longer Well, just the ones that are most interesting uh a lot of the ones now relate around around to my children uh the is to spend quality time with my children is a, is a big thing for me. Um, I have two daughters. How old are they, Tom? Uh, they are now 14 and 10. Um, and I was a terrible father when I was younger. I was away too much. It wasn't like I was beating my kids up or anything like that. <laughs> I just wasn't there enough for them. And the argument is when they're really young, it doesn't matter. But then you really need to be there for your wife because there's a lot of you know time and stress. Mm. And in Hong Kong, you're lucky. We're fortunate because everybody has help in Hong Kong. It's it's very common. Whereas in the UK, it's it's much less common. But Asian culture is traditionally you have a lot of help at home. So mm. she was she has that help at home. I was away a lot, traveling a lot, really business business, and it wasn't a priority. And then I, I be, as your kids grow older and they start reacting to you, and you, you start getting some abuse for not being there enough. And, but it really came home for me when my youngest daughter made me sign a contract which is still stuck on my fridge somewhere which says daddy has to sign this contract when he's at home to be with me not on his computer something like that wow and that was like jesus i'm not doing a good job here my wife's like you know how much money do you need you know what's more important you do your daughter's growing well so a lot of those sort of my daily goals around spending time with kids being there every day before they go to school not turning my phone or computer until after they've gone to bed and those things and nine times out of ten I'll, that will be successful but there's the odd day when it isn't yeah, yeah. There, a lot of my other goals are sort of uh, there's some health ones my health is uh, my weight and fitness is up and down like a yo-yo like Ray and the guys can tell you but yeah. uh, so there's some around that and this year that's a bigger focus for me a lot of work related or you know I want to this I want this software release out by such and such a date I want this property finished by such and such a time so some of them are quite sort of measurable uh-huh. Um, and others are not so quantifiable but you won't suddenly see me I'm going to learn Spanish next year or things like that I think when you get to 50 you realise what's achievable and what's not and you can always set yourself you know these real aspirational goals but uh, for me it doesn't work for me that's really interesting to hear you say that though because I'd say a lot of people listening to this would say the proposition of learning Spanish versus getting a piece of software out and having this amount of ARR is probably easy in comparison. That's the great thing about everybody being different and their own goals. Mm. Um, to my wife, learning a language is far more important than 
with shareholders in a restaurant than the restaurant making X amount of money because uh, that's what she wants to achieve or she wants to improve to the next level of the dance she's doing. Uh, so it's obviously goals are, are very personal to the individual. And I, I do think though people should break down what you know, something Tony Robbins is, you know, you should, there's things you should be trying to do every day. There's things you should be doing in, let's call it the short term, medium term, long term. Yeah. And I think you just need to, whatever those time periods are for you, uh, can be very different you know it can be a week can be a month can be a quarter it depends how you plan it depends sometimes you're in a job where you've got no say over what your job is or what your job things the best you can hope for is a promotion in a year's time or you can do this course and things like that so that again is definitely if you're in charge of your own career or business whether it's a small single person sole proprietor business to a big one great have some work goals but you know what if you're at home looking after the kids you know, you, you're forced to your husband's at work or your wife's at work, whatever, and you're stuck looking after the kids, which is, that's a massive job in itself. What are your goals? Yeah. yeah. But that's why I think listening to Anthony Robbins, the way he approaches that, which deals for everybody, is really good. And I'm not associated with Anthony Robbins in any way, shape, or form. You've mentioned him a few times. Do you remember what we'll interview him at some point? What's the name of that? Of that? Is it a specific course? Yes, it is. It's, and I will we find can, it for we you can look later. it up afterwards. Yeah, people yeah. might be interested in that. It's so, look, can we just um, touch on health? Because you mentioned then that there's a couple of goals that are related to health, and yep. that, that you, you've, you've had some struggles there. The and last time I was properly fit was when I was playing international rugby. Uh, and even then, Paige, you would argue, I was never really that fit because my game was more about sort of brute strength and physicality than uh, skill and and uh, fitness. Um, I had a heart. I was always reasonably fit. Then I think stress of work, working too long hours, eating too much crap. Uh, I ended up having a heart attack in 2012. And I think all blokes in particular think they're indestructible and they're, you know, whilst they know they're a bit unhealthy, you think you're going to survive everything forever. And when you, it's also if you've played rug, sport like rugby, which is fairly physical, and I've skied pretty aggressively, you know, lots of dangerous stuff, and you survive all that. Mm. I'm, not, I'm not saying I'm a base jumper or anything like that. <laughs> but yet. you, no, never will be either. <laughs> Um, you've seen those guys go splat when they hit, hit something. It's, it's only not. a matter of time. It's, <laughs> it's going to happen at some point. You keep doing that, it's going to happen. I've done yeah. a one, one tandem free fall jump. That was enough for me jumping out of planes. Yeah. Uh, it makes you realize you're not indestructible and that you have to focus on, on, on other things in life. And uh, Were there any warnings? No, that's that's the strange thing. And I was I was really you know I wasn't I'm not a big drinker. I'm not a huge eater, but I wasn't. Uh, and I was I don't sleep enough. But I was training for a white collar boxing match. So actually at that time I was actually really fit because there was when you know, two business guys boxing each other. After rugby, I took up boxing because my knees were shot. Yeah. So boxing was my sort of form of cardio. I enjoyed it, and um, so you fight other business people roughly the same weight, same amount of experience. Maybe they should introduce that, you know, in a legal sense, you know, instead of getting the lawyers in. <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah. just, just getting a ring. That's a great idea. Who wants it most? It would be, yeah. well, it would be, be like cheaper. cheaper. <laughs> 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 yeah, as long as you can't get sued. If yeah, wouldn't be very fair, though, if you've got some tiny little sort of uh, CEO at one company and sort of like oh, um, that's true, yeah. George Foreman on yeah, the other side. Yeah, it'd have to be weight, yeah. Yeah, yeah weight, weight, weight linked <laughs> or age probably as well. Um, no, I was, I was super fit from the boxing and I'd actually sparred eight full rounds of sparring and then got back to my office and felt really uncomfortable. Like sort of a kid was sitting on my chest and afterwards my arms a bit funny and I, I remember asking one of the rugby guys in my office, a guy called Mark Fatialofo, who was a real proper rugby player, played for Samoa. Fats, look up on the internet, um, uh, chest pain, sore left arm, <laughs> things like that. And he goes, yeah, not good, mate. You might have had a heart attack. 
And this is the day, once a year, I take my wife to the ballet. And I hate it. I hate going to the ballet. <laughs> but when you're married, you put up with it once a year. And so my wife calls about four o'clock, said, uh, no, about five o'clock. And I, I've, so at 4.30, I'd had this heart attack. Didn't know at the time, just didn't know what it was. But I was so fit, I was recovering. I was lying on the sofa. And my chai calls and says, uh, you don't forget we got ballet tonight at the Hong Kong Cultural Theatre. I was like, yeah, I'm really not feeling good. Can I, can I pull it out? She went, no, you yeah. pulled a sickie on me last year when we were in Sydney. You made one of my, your friends go with me to the ballet, <laughs> which is true. You're coming with me. So I'm like, fine. Uh, so by, I, I'm I, quite happy to go to the ballet with Chai, by the way. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so ballet was at, started at 6.30, I think. So I left the office at 6. I'm feeling okay and uh, managed to get a cab over to the other side, from Hong Kong Island to the main, uh, to Kowloon side. There's the theatre there. In the in the in the watching the ballet, seven thirty in the ballet, I have another heart attack. I'm like, oh, crunched over like this, and it's a bit painful. And Chai goes, oh, are you enjoying it? You're getting emotional. I'm like, no, I'm in pain. <laughs> What's wrong? What's wrong? I said, oh no, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And uh, after the ballet, I'm now beginning to feel a bit shit and can't get find a cab. So we end up walking to the Star Ferry, taking the ferry back to Hong Kong Island. Can't find a cab. Walk another four or five hundred meters, and so get back to our apartment I said I've got to go to the hospital I said I've been hurt from rugby a few times this is something else she goes oh you'll be fine just sleep it off I said no nah, I'm going to the hospital wow. so I pack a small bag uh, so just because of the weight and go drive up to the hospital which it chai drives me and they put me in for a blood test and a ECG and because I was so fit my heart rhythm wasn't showing any irregularities and I said to chai looks at me a while to the blood test results just go home if there's anything I'll call you Blood test back, had a heart attack, straight in for emergency services, don't have time to call Chai. Um, so she thinks everything's fine because I haven't called. Um, two stents. Wow, um, that quickly? That quickly. Two stents put in. And next morning, though, because you do it under local anaesthetic, yeah. not general, so you're not knocked out or anything like that. And I've watched on the screen as something gets shut. That's one of the weirdest feelings when you see the tube inside you and you feel it. Oh. It doesn't hurt. You've got no nerves inside as they're putting the stents in place. So the she comes around in the morning. So what was wrong with you? Oh, I had a heart attack. No, seriously, I had a heart attack. <laughs> She's like, "Come on!" Because I was already on my laptop at you know eight o'clock. I was on board. Was like, There's nothing to do in the hospital bed. <laughs> then the doctor walks in and said, "Ah, oh, uh, Mr. Hall, Mrs. Hall, uh, very lucky your husband came in last night. The blood clot was still two and a half inches from the heart." If it had left another 12 hours, it could have got into the heart chambers and your husband would have probably have passed. 50-50 you know, chances to survive. This point, of course, Chai realises it's serious and bursts into tears, feels guilty about telling me to sleep it off. The only silver lining to all of this is I now have a pink ticket from yeah, going for to the ballet, ballet for life. <laughs> <laughs> I never have to go to ballet again. So that was the only good thing about having a heart attack. But it makes you... I had to spend some time in hospital, I think 10 days in hospital afterwards and taking it really easy. And you have six months where you can't do very much other than eat. Uh, they feed you uh, blood thinners and stuff like that. Um, and it made me refocus a lot more. You know, try to focus. Start, it was the start of me focusing on what was really important to me, what businesses and investments weren't worth the time. And you It was when I realized how important time, time was, was yeah. Uh, yeah. as opposed to other assets, yeah. if you like. Time with kids. I read a book book about fathers bringing up daughters which scared the crap out of me and I'll have to f remember the name of that book as well because it was written with a lot of statistical evidence as well about US, UK young girls drugs, um, STDs all sorts of horrific stuff as a dad with daughters you really don't want to hear um, and also I think it was 
you get to spend something like six thousand six thousand seven hundred there's a book six thousand seven hundred ninety hours with your kids or hours or day or days with your children that was it before they go off to university you never yeah. see them again yeah I've and you can never get that back <laughs> the statistic you do is see them again surely you see them again you see them again <laughs> but they leave not in the same way yeah. Yeah. i've heard that so uh, i think it's it's either 80 or 90 percent of all of the time that you spend with your parents happens before the age of 16 yeah and that's so same well, sort of right, distribution yeah, 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 yeah. It's scary isn't it and that's actually when I started talking to Ray about, you know, we, we're going on about building asset management platforms. And I said, the single most valuable asset is, to, I actually bought a load of your website URLs. I was going to do a business. I thought when, they, when I was in my most like, geez, you've got to spend more time with your kids. I bought like 6791days.com and all these URLs around that I was going mm. to build a website. Never ended up building it. But uh, Was that what you were doing on the computer when you should have been with the kids? <laughs> <laughs> People must do something with their time. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Uh, but that's when sort of time became a, a, a big element in 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 what I wanted to do and sim- simplifying my life, finishing off a load of projects, construction projects. Uh, you know, I was building property all over the place. You know, some as investment, some as personal, and that was it. Like my wife said, put the foot down. Said, right, that's it. No more places. Finish off the stuff you've got. Because the stuff you've got takes three, four years to do. Sometimes it can take longer. Uh, I'd also been involved in a court case which dragged on for seven, eight years, which finished a couple of years after that. So that was like a bit sort of an uncertain time when you know there were certain things going on. It's a civil case, not a criminal case, but anyways, it was a distraction of time and things like that. So when that finished as well, it was a real, you've had a heart attack, this court case is done, your businesses are reasonably successful. Um, what are you going to do now? Mm. And uh, so a few things changed. And a, a, a bit of it was trying to be a better dad has been and, and, and husband. Yeah, partner to my wife as well. And have you have you succeeded in that? To a certain degree, yes. I would say there's definitely a lot more improvement can be made, but it's definitely a lot better than it was. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think you're ever going to get perfect, but I can certainly do better. Yeah, and and so your the habits you've developed over the years of you know thinking about the value of time to you and and others and then registering a whole load of urls and thinking oh wow come this this could be a great business that's a habit right and it's hard to get out of that because you see opportunities that's that's what you get a buzz out of yeah yeah say no to things not you know not not taking the opportunity you i i was renowned a lot in my younger days of (laughs) over promising and under delivering (laughs) still occasionally today in business and in life, uh, and that's something of a good salesman. you try to get better at. Uh, and learning to say no is one of the hardest things. My thing was like, when every time I saw a good opportunity, I should invest in this. Mm. And even if it's a passive investment, you realize that it's a distraction on your times, you're worrying about it, or you have to delegate it to somebody else who has to worry about it. And nine times out of ten, well, nine times out of ten, whatever time, there's a large percentage of those investments, unless you're really sitting on top of them and you've got the right people in place, just worth, aren't worth doing. So now I'm extremely selective on what I invest in or the family and office I'm involved in invests in. Um, so we stick to our core online gaming stuff and a few core software platforms and real estate development where we understand it as a as, as, as something to do. I have my fun stuff as well. I love the booze business is fun, wine and spirits and things like that. I enjoy that. Yeah, I just got. I got to ask you because you're quite unique in my experience. In that your your work and your life um, are very very intertwined. Yeah, intertwined. You know, if if I go, if you you know, if you invite me to a party, uh, you know, there'll be a whole load of guys we grew up with. 
and there'll be a whole load of people you've worked with over the years there'll be a whole load of people from valley rugby club and it's it's you you don't draw don't seem to draw distinctions between those things well it's like you said earlier is, is there a work life and a home life or life um one thing if you ask a lot of entrepreneurs one of the biggest benefits of running your own businesses you certainly don't know all your employees but at least the senior management or people you work with are people you like to work with mm. you choose who you hire yeah. or who you fire and you generally don't hire people you hate no. there might be people you don't like but you still need them compliance officers auditors <laughs> things like that you know and to be honest sometimes I those can almost guarantee they won't be listening to this anyway so <laughs> if you are send us a drop us an email yeah. we'll say hello um and you're never going to be, be you shouldn't be best friends with everybody you work with but I still like prefer to work with people I like yeah, than yeah. people I don't like so a lot of my people I work through when people that I work with both internally and people I work with are partners and things like that you know generally people I get on with so that's one thing I'm fortunate with so we say the mix of people and I work a lot bizarrely through sports things and I'm a sports I love sports as I know you do as well Ray yeah. so there's a lot of crossover fortunately with my work and sport and my friends and I love going to sporting events, but there's nothing better than going to a sporting event with your mates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because you enjoy it so much more. It's yeah. not just the event, it's the drinks the night before, it's the, uh, yeah. you know, catch up lunch well, afterwards. It's, it's a shared experience, isn't it? And that's, uh, you know, right. there's no, I mean, it, it was particularly with business as well. It's, it's no good um, taking your company pub public if you own 100% of it because you don't share that with anyone. Oh, I know some people that disagree with you there, but uh, uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. But <laughs> but in the longer term, it, it's you know it's about those sharing experiences, which I don't know makes life worth living. And sometimes they're not always good experiences. That you know, like working for Liberty Life, it was bloody hard work, and you know, but when you get back together thirty years later, it, it's yeah, it's fun. Th there's a, there's a good real example of that. Um, when I got older, I decided to support Valley Rugby Club. Is that for me? When I was young in Hong Kong, it really helped me. And we just, I decided to sponsor the rugby section of Valley uh, and help out with various things during the year. And when we first started sponsoring, we would put together sort of increases in pay packages and pay people money and give them financial incentives. But didn't really equate to hmm. better results for the team. And then we just decided to experiment one year. said, look, rather than pay them more money, why don't we take them on a holiday at the end of the mm. season if they do well? So we said, if we win the championships, instead of getting a bonus, we'll take you on a holiday you couldn't normally do yourself. So we took them all to Vegas. Um, it was the casino industry, you've got connections in Vegas. So we managed to put on a fantastic experience for the team, many of them who had never been to the States before. And that was probably seven, eight years ago now. And in fact, it was seven years ago because I know because they've won the bloody championship the last <laughs> six times. So they don't get and so it's been such an incentive that they've... Uh, uh, but it, it's... it's Because if you give people, I think, the experience and the memories, they will remember that trip to Vegas for the rest of their lives. They will not remember if they got paid an extra no. 500 Hong Kong dollars no. a game yeah. or got paid a bonus of 10,000 Hong Kong dollars. But they all remember that trip with their friends doing these crazy things that they did for the rest of their life yeah. and I think that's something for when I came to Hong Kong you know when we didn't have you know we were invited to people's houses for food the guys subsidised a tour for us we, the, guy, the young guys had no money the older players chipped in and paid for us and things like that so that thing's great within the rugby community and different sporting communities that exist so that's important for me to recreate and um, even Chai that you know thinks I'm you know, too generous with my friends and stuff like that sometimes and she's that one she understands and, and it's actually been great my wife set up a charity in 
she built schools in the Philippines and now the rugby team they get taken on a free holiday but they will then raise money themselves and give money back to Chai's charity so you know so they're they're getting a free holiday but they've actually realized hey this is a good thing we should be doing our own thing so it's 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 she she understands that now and i don't think you understand it unless you've been part of a team a sports team which grows together but mm. is and it's you know the results are proof in the pudding uh, we've had roughly the same level of squad as all the other teams in hong kong yet we've managed to win for the last six years i think we'll struggle this year but uh, are you still taking them away yeah, on these kinds yeah of trips? we've been to vegas a few times yeah. miami the year we took them but this year because of um, it was Rugby World Cup um, qualifying period this year so a lot of the Hong Kong guys were tied up with the Hong Kong team so we had to stay local so we went to Bali this year the worst we did was we took them to Tomorrowland in Belgium which is the three day music so oh, London yeah, yeah, and Belgium this, yeah. taking 25 rugby players to a music fe- a rave music festival in Holland or Belgium for three days is probably not the safest for their health so we won't <laughs> be doing that again but they had a lot of fun but I, I and did you, you go along to the trip on the trip I do start. except for that one I didn't um, that one I stayed in London when they went off to Belgium I'd done Tomorrowland the year before with three friends and that was enough uh, three friends and Chai went but uh, yeah it's it's the idea is you, you take them somewhere and give them an experience they can't normally do on their own. Mm. You know, try try and get twenty five guys into a nightclub in Vegas if you don't know the right people is pretty tr- pretty tricky. So uh, that sort of thing helps. Good for you. Being in the casino business. So what's next? I'm always asked if I'm going to retire, and I always say, yeah, I sort of will. But I don't like you said. What you know? Why stop working? Um, if you're going to die five years, I think definitely the ratio of work to non-work will slowly increase to the non-work it's it's happening already i'm not going to the office every day you know i've been going to the office at seven o'clock in the morning so i'm going to take my daughter downstairs drive to work before it gets busy i'm in the office so i can do some stuff when you get there i was doing that every day for the last 20 years and but now i um stay at home a few days and uh is that hard for you uh not anymore okay. it's, it's it, it was hard but it's getting easier all the time I, I had some minor health issues recently i had to stay at home for five days I actually really enjoyed it just spent some time with chai got caught up with some chores actually walked near the beach. we live right on the beach in hong kong which is rare and i very rarely use it <laughs> and i'm bitching and moaning about the price of rent in hong kong and i suddenly thought to myself why why am I complaining? I'm living on the beach in Hong Kong, which is a great place to work. Hong Kong's so safe for my wife and daughters. You know, Hong Kong's one of the safest cities in the world, along with Tokyo and Singapore. You know, you, I was just reading yesterday, somebody got knifed on the train from Guildford I know, yeah. to oh, Waterloo, yeah, a 51-year-old yeah. with a 14-year-old kid. And I'm like, Jesus, that could have been me. Yeah, in Hong Kong, you know, there's very, very little crime about that. It's petty crime. Mm. But, you know, a woman can walk anywhere in Hong Kong, day or night, and she should be fine. Yeah, that that sort of stuff doesn't happen. So I think the ratio of time spent in the office versus time spent at home will change. Mm. Uh, But I I think I have the sort of brain I always like to be looking at something. I might write a book relatively soon, uh, something that's been discussed for a while. I'm just working out if it's something I really want to do. Do I want to do it for ego reasons? And I think Ray and I have had this discussion. Autobiography. Do it it if you enjoy it. there's a lot of stories about Hong Kong and Asian gambling stories which are really funny and Ray and a few of the guys have heard some of the stories but some of the stuff in that could get people into trouble <laughs> uh, so while well, they're alive and some are older some are younger but so the current thinking is to do a sort of turn it into a fictional yeah. thing with some you know being based on a true story but of course not being a true not story not being the actual not story not being the actual story sort of like a James Clavell Noble House yeah. type thing um, and because there are some characters one, one thing you say about the gaming industry versus finance the people are so much more interesting and you've got 
a diverse, bizarre range of characters which who have some of them become billionaires through pure fluke of timing or luck of judge, lack of you know just whatever. It's crazy sometimes how people have just fallen on a fortune. Yeah, uh, some have worked very long and hard and persevered for it. So there's a mix. I can't believe we've gone this far <coughs> and not mentioned poker. <laughs> Yeah, poker's that was a fun part of my life. Um, during we were into casino gaming, you know, sort of what slot machines, roulette wheels, and and sports betting, and online poker became a big thing probably ten years ago now. And we knew nothing about poker, so I decided to hire a team of Asian American poker players because they were the best at that time. Asians playing poker, there was poker obviously been going a lot longer in the states, and it was very new in Asia. We thought we'd better learn a bit about it, and through that, I was fortunate enough to meet. Uh, a couple of guys who taught me how to play poker properly. Um, I had the misfortune of when I got into poker, the second tournament I entered, I ended up making a final table, a big tournament, WPT charity tournament. Uh, first place was $50,000. I ended up uh, winning $20,000, I think it was. Um, but out of hundreds of people, I came third, I think it was. And I was like, Jesus, this is easy. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, lost a load of money playing poker and I thought I'd better learn how to play. So uh, two of the guys we'd hired as like a promo team taught me to play. And at the time, I was lucky there was a game called The Big Game started in Macau and the players, we were all awful. We were all awful, but I was less awful than some of the others. And in poker, as long as you're not the worst player at the table, you can generally do okay. So they taught me to play properly, adjusted a strategy. And we won at that game for years. I made a lot of money, and they took a piece of the winning. I was doing this whilst working, but well, just for fu just for fun, just just as a became a bit obsessed with it because you're if you work in the gaming business, you know you should not be gambling with a casino because <laughs> you're not going to win in the longer yeah. term. You can't beat the house. Sports betting you can beat if you're very good or you've got computerized modelling, and there's teams. Uh, some certain gentleman in your part of the world is uh, famous for doing it. Yeah. Um, computerized soccer betting computerized horse racing is the traditional computerized model so you can win and people can be smart punters mm. but casino gambling long term you're never going to win you can, if you gamble occasionally you win occasionally great um, but poker is you're playing other people so it's the only time you can gamble skill wise and beat other people if you're better than mm. them you need a bit of luck too because poker's a degree of luck uh, but then it takes up a lot of your time so I really enjoyed it for a few years played did okay uh, played a few high stakes tournaments didn't do so well in those and then sort of slowed off but um, it's really interesting you meet poker players who are at the table you know their job is to lie deceive mm -hmm. bluff <laughs> you and they're very smart at the table but god they're the worst investors ever for <laughs> some reason that mentality breeds the oh can make more money because poker players have no value of money no. because you know you'll win a million dollars in a tournament one day and think you're going to do it all the time in fact poker players are quite cyclical they win two or three tournaments or place really well for six seven months and they think their lifestyle is going to continue like that and then it suddenly drops off a cliff they lost a form other people get better the game changes so it's a really tough business becoming a professional poker player. And I'm, I'm fortunate to have met some of the very best players in the world. And even those guys have, period, have periodically have really bad times. So I learned that it's great fun playing poker. And now the only poker I really enjoy is playing with my mates for small money for fun. We yeah. just, everybody buys in for $100. And you know whoever goes broke wins all the money, that sort of thing. And it's just the banter at the table is much more Bragging fun. Bragging rights. Sorry? Bragging, Bragging rights. rights. Yeah. Do, you, do you win, Tom? <laughs> In those little ones, occasionally. To be honest, if I'm playing with the really good guys, no. Yeah, he's yeah. met some of my friends that are like Namley and Jason yeah. Tran. I mean, these are world-class, yeah, yeah. top 100 money winners of all-time players who've won millions of millions of dollars. Um, for fun, you know, in a fun tournament, anybody can win. But when it's 
you know, these long tournaments are sort of minimum of three days, maximum of like 10 days, and you're wow. playing 12 hours a day. It's an endurance sport. Yeah, you've got to concentrate, yeah. Now. Not many sports, if you think about it. You make one mistake and you're done. You know, if in tennis, you can have a mental blow up, you lose a point, you lose a game, you lose a set, you have a chance to continue. Um, golf, you mess up one hole, you can continue. But in poker, in a poker tournament, you make one stupid mistake, that's it, you're done. Yeah. Four days of work, you're done. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because boxing's probably as close as you get. Correct. You, you can make one mistake in boxing, that's it. Yeah. yeah Game over. It. I've never, never thought, it, I mean, when, even when you say poker and sports, those two things don't correlate well for me. But it's interesting when you talk about it like that because you can see... Well, it really it's is. mental it's endurance. Mental, mental endurance, and uh, it's constant learning. I mean, poker's part theory, it's part you know maths, part probability, mm. part theory. It's reading people, body language. Um, I, I I spoke to um, I can't remember who it was in Vegas. You introduced me to him. We were at dinner, and I was talking to him, and we were talking about psychology, and and he was telling me that he when he's playing against somebody that he doesn't know. They're a stranger to him. He tries to work out who they look like that he's played against previously. And that's who he plays against. And he's one of the he was one of the top guys. It's, I've forgotten his name, but his his wife was a poker player as well. I can't remember who. Yeah. But it was very interesting. And he and it seemed to me that it was just because he had a plan. Even though he didn't know what this player played like, mm. he had in his head that he was playing against somebody and 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 that in itself was an uh, advantage was, was an advantage yeah. because he was confident yeah 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 there's there's many different tactics uh, but you also realize that it poker at any form of competitive level you have to constantly be learning that's the reason there's professionals and amateurs and the amateurs will occasionally get lucky and there's one tournament in the states which is the biggest tournament in the world called the world series of poker main event you buy them for 10,000 US dollars and they get like 6,000 6,500 players and they're probably no ninety percent would be amateurs versus the professionals, but you'll still end up with a couple of pros at the table, a couple of amateurs. But in the high roller tables where everybody's good, it's nearly always all the pros that make the final table. Yeah. So you can see there's a clear clear balance. But it was an interesting part of my life. It taught me a few few lessons. Uh, taught me how to read people a bit better as well. Mm. Body language lessons learnt through poker, which is never a bad thing. Yeah. That wasn't what I thought was going to come from this conversation, that I, I, I go away feeling like I want to go play poker, but I do. <laughs> oh, well. Maybe that's what's next. Well, eh? We've got a table downstairs, so we can have a quick sesh. Yeah, great. Lovely. Thank you, Tom. It's been great. No problem. That's it, folks. For show notes, head over to the website at www.lifedonedifferent.ly where you'll find links, a quick summary, and you can also explore other conversations. If you're enjoying this podcast, then please tell your friends, give us a good rating, and remember to subscribe. We're also really keen to hear your feedback, so please do let us know what you think and give us your ideas over on Twitter. You can tweet us at lifedonediff, that's double F. If you fancy something different in your life, check out Do Something Different. It's really simple. Head over to www.dsd.me, go to the Pro Collection, choose a program that suits your goal. That could be being happier, more emotionally intelligent, or even quitting smoking. And then you're off. You'll be sent some small steps that stretch your comfort zone and help you achieve your goals. Enjoy. And until next time, keep on living life differently. <laughs> <laughs>